I mentioned recently that of the top five reasons given for marital conflict, two reasons are at the top of every survey that's ever been conducted. And uh, the order may vary, but they find themselves in the top five regardless of the source of the, of, the, uh, of the survey. And the first one that we discussed in great detail the last several weeks was financial co conflict, uh, areas that involved in finances and how that creates a strain on many marital relationships. And so we dealt with that. And the second source of conflict is that of sexual conflict. You know, the arguments and the disagreements and the strained relationships that are... That, uh, are a result of differences uh, concerning sexual activity. And these differences can, you know, if not confronted in a positive way, often lead to anger and bitterness and resentment and hurt feelings and worst case scenarios that could lead to extramarital affairs and in drastic situations even go as far as leading to divorce. So it's an important uh, subject that we're going to discuss and it's imperative if we're to enjoy a healthy, vibrant, sexual relationship in our marriage that we learn how to become a great lover. So that is what we'll be discussing today and that search for fulfillment is uh, you know one of the the search for fulfillment especially romantic relationships you know it really is the theme of most uh, movies and hit songs and you know pop novels, soap operas, sitcoms all these things are devoured by millions of folks who are all looking for the answer to this question how can I become a great lover? And, uh, you know, this desire, this need to know, is, as is often the case, you know, there's a variety and an abundance of opinions. And where there's an abundance of opinions, there's also an abundance of confusion. And so everyone has a, a, an opinion on this subject, and the, the particular experts or so-called experts often disagree with one another. So where confusion is rampant, and in the final analysis, I think that, you know, truth be known, not many of us would get a passing grade if we were to be tested on what God says makes for a great lover. I love the story that I heard not too long ago about a little girl who was visiting her grandmother. And uh, they were talking, and they were spending some time talking about various things. And this little girl is about eight or nine years old. And, and uh, finally she said to her grandma, she said, Grandma, how old are you? And Grandma kind of looked at her and hesitated, and she said, You know, honey, um, that's not a question that you ask older women. And she said, Well, I just need to know for school. And she said, Well, you know what, that, that's just, that's just going to be our secret, okay? Uh, you don't really need to know. So she sent her away, and she was doing some other things. And sure enough, you know, there's that, that, that quiet, that silence that every parent or grandparent knows. When, when you have children around and it's silence, there's something going on that's no good. And so she walked in the room, and sure enough, this little granddaughter of hers had gone through her purse, had gone through her wallet, and was sitting there and looking at her driver's license. And she said, Grandma, you're 68 years old. And her grandma said, how did you figure that out? She said, well, I took the year, this year, and I saw the year that you were born, and I subtracted the two, and that gave me 68. You're 68 years old, right? And her grandmother, not wishing to lie, said, yes, I'm 68 years old, but that's our little secret, and so that'll just be something that will be between me and you and nobody else. And the little girl looked at her, and she had this look on her face, and she said, well, okay, then I'll keep your other secret, too. And her grandma said, your other secret, too? What secret's that, honey? I saw that you got an F in sex. <laughs> so there you go. So the rest of us don't get an F in sex. We're going to examine what God says makes for a great lover. And since he invented it, then we'll turn to the owner's manual, which is in here. We'll turn to the Bible. We'll look at it. But before we do that, I want to ask a question. And uh, the question is this. What makes a great lover? I mean, if you stop and think about it, we need to address this because it's important as we address this question that we not lose sight of this truth. And I've been trying to, all throughout this series... Make sure that we never lose sight of this one simple fact when it comes to marriage, and that is this. Men and women are what? Different. Amen. Men and women are different. In a lot of different ways, we are different. Men and women are different. So when you ask this question, what makes a great lover? It shouldn't surprise us by this point that we realize that men will have one answer and women are going to have a different answer because men and women are different. And we need to recognize that. We need to understand that. To build an intimate marriage, a husband and wife must be committed to meeting one another's, listen to me, physical and emotional needs. We have to be committed to meeting both. 
And, you know, because most men and women have different ideas and standards and expectations about sex, it's understandable that many marriages suffer isolation in this area. And for many, sex can be an extremely lonely act. And we need to recognize that because we are different. Example of these differences. Listen to this. USA Today told of how Ann Landers once put this question to 70 million readers. Her question was, would you be content to be held close and treated tenderly and forget about, quote, the act? So many women wrote to answer Ann's questions. The letter started filling her office and mailroom. Two months later, she reported that 90,000 women had responded to her question. And listen to this. I think this is significant. 71% said that they would prefer to forget about the act and exchange it for tenderness and a warm hug or a gentle touch. Now, before you think anything else of this, it's important to realize that 40% of those who responded were women under the age of 40. Interesting. One woman said this, I'm under 40 and would be delighted to settle for tender words and more warm caresses. The rest of it is boring and can be exhausting. A 55-year-old woman wrote, I vote yes. The best part is the cuddling and the caressing and the tender words that come with caring. But I like a couple other comments, too. One lady said, to say that touching and tender words is sufficient is like settling for the smell of freshly baked bread and ignoring the nourishment that it provides. (laughs) Some people must be crazy. A 62-year-old woman said this emphatically, if my old man was over the hill, I'd settle for high school necking. But as long as he's able to shake the walls and wake up the neighbors downstairs, I want to get in on the action. (laughs) And by the way, I'll take an encore anytime I can get it. (laughs) And every guy here said, Amen. (laughs) It's interesting as you go through this. Fortunately for us, as I was doing some research and putting us all together, I was given a copy of a recent medical study. And I don't think that anybody in here has seen this particular medical study. It just came out. It's fresh off the presses, man. It just, it's in all the medical journals. And, uh, and I was given this, and, 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 and this, this could change your life. Because it is, and it breaks out in a way that I think every one of us can understand the differences between men and women. And what it is, it's a cross-section of the human brain. And what they did was they took a woman's brain, they took a, a, a man's brain, and they, and they gave us an inside look at what's going on in the, well, let's take the woman's brain for a second. Okay, look what we have here. Here's the female brain. And it's broken out. Now, now it's kind of, can you see that? This is really important. This is critical because this is going to change your life in the area of sex. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'll have to read some of these to you. Well, I can't do anything about the light. What? Take, somebody blocked the sun. But well, see if you can, well, here, I'll read it for you. No, notice the largest part of the female brain is what? The need for commitment hemisphere. They, they discovered that the largest part of a woman's brain is a need for commitment. Now, what's interesting, in the middle of all that is the sense of direct nuclei, which is this, oh, there we go, that's a little better. So we got the need for commitment to hemisphere, which is the largest part of, the, of, the, of a woman's brain. We, we have the gossip gland on one side, uh, the jealousy gland is in there, and, and the gland for in the center of irrational thoughts. Now, what I thought was interesting, now, no, 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 don't, don't leave me yet, because we'll get to the male brain in a second. No, just take the time. And on second thoughts, we may never get to the male brain. (laughs) Because some of you are saying, but what are we going to find there anyway? (laughs) Now to the right, we see the ice cream receptor, which is immediately located above the chocolate center. Now, you know, those are important. Now what I want to point out for the purpose of our study today on how to become a great lover, we see that the largest part of the brain is the need for commitment. While we have here, this little dot is the sex particle. The speck right there. That's, that's the, the thought process that we got going on there. And then you got phone skills, shopping, indecision, argument, debate lobe, and then the, the business lobe. So that gives us a rough overview. Now, now think of, and compa- now try to remember what you just saw and compare this to the male brain. And I think this study proves everything that I'm saying. We're different. Here we go. What's the largest part of the male brain? <laughs> the largest part of the male brain, and, 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 and it's interesting to me, it's, it's the sexual thoughts. It's, it's 70% of the male brain it has to do with sexual thought. 70% of the woman's brain has to do with commitment and long-term possibilities. 
So we've got a problem. But I, I like in the midst of the sexual thought is the gland for gastrointestinal pride. So, you know, it kind of gets mixed in there somewhere. Oh, that was a good one, huh, son? Yeah, dad. You know, so th that's in there too. Now, you can see, remember the sex particle in the woman's brain? Well, look at the commitment particle in the, in the, in the commitment molecule in the man's brain. So you can see we got all kind of stuff going on here. We got the lame excuses gland. We got the remote control addiction center. Uh, we got the ability to drive a stick shift, which we saw was not even visible on the woman's brain. <laughs> not that you can't overcome these handicaps, but sometimes you got, you got what else? We got math stuff. Um, the computer fixation lobe is in there. Uh, the interruption lobe, the TV lobe, and, and the listening particle is the same size as the commitment molecule. And, and, uh, and the personal hygiene cell, listen to me guys, listen to me real carefully, okay? If you want to become a great lover, the, you know, the personal hygiene cell needs to grow a little bit. The listening particle needs to get longer, a little larger, you know, and some of these other things. And, and, and you know, in honor of Super Bowl Sunday, the last lobe that we're going to, is the Michelob. So, th that, that's, um, they, they found the Michelob there, and, and I'm not sure what this all means. But I, th I think, for our purposes, that it becomes apparent that, for the most part, men think about sex while women are looking at commitment. And we need to understand that. And there's some differences there. But fortunately, God has a lot to say about it, and so we can look at, you know, something that, if you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you don't, I'll put it up here on the overhead. Um, and you can read it from there, but we'll go, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, see what God has to say makes for a great lover. And it's amazing the insight that we can get as we take a look at this. Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll pick it up. There's four principles. If you want to become a great lover, you need to observe these four principles. And I'll guarantee you right now, if you observe these four principles, both as a husband and as a wife, it's going to be incredible. You probably get nothing else done all week if you go home and apply these things. But that's all right. Finally, homework you can't wait to get to. All right, here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, look at verse 1 through 5, we read this. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. It says, let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Now, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and then come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In this particular passage, there are four principles that are neatly identified for us, and if we apply these things, I guarantee you they'll change your life. The first principle that we'll take a look at is the principle of what I would call um, marital fidelity. Marital fidelity. You can see here as you look at it, he says, you know what? Uh, because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife. Let each woman have her own husband. You know, this principle can't be emphasized enough because it's the foundation upon which everything else is built. I like one TV talk show host was interviewing one of Hollywood's biggest male stars, a man known for his prowess with the opposite sex. And at one point, the host asked him, what makes a great lover? And he said this, two things. First of all, it is a man who can satisfy one woman over a lifetime. And it is a man who can be satisfied with one woman for a lifetime. Interesting. Let me tell you something. You have got to be a great lover to satisfy one person for the rest of your life. Isn't that true? Think about that. What are you saying was true? It's easy to satisfy somebody on a temporary basis. It's easy to please somebody once in their lifetime or twice or three times or four times. It's easy to say the right things once or twice or four or five times. It's easy to please somebody on a short-term basis. But it takes a great lover to please a spouse for a whole lifetime. That is an assignment. That is tough stuff. 
But you know what? And it's also highly possible if we apply the principles that God says we need to apply. You know, we live in a culture that would try to convince us that sexual experiences with a number of different people is what makes us become great lovers. Oh, we need the experience. Oh, it's just you learn this from this person, that from that person. You take this from this relationship into that relationship, and this goes on here, and this goes on. And you put it all together, and oh, man, you are, you know, Don Juan. You are Romeo. You put them all together, man. But what God says is that's exactly the opposite of what he says makes for a great lover. And in fact, if anything, if you try to do that that way, it'll rob you of the sexual vitality that God had designed for us to have and enjoy with one another. It'll steal it right from you. It's not true. What our society is saying is not true. It's a lie. And I'll demonstrate it as I go on here. You know, this so-called lie of sexual freedom, you know, by the way, isn't, it's nothing new. In uh, 1980, Linda and I had an opportunity to go to Europe for the first time. We went to Athens, and we went to all the surrounding countrysides and, uh, and visited the things that were going on there. And one of the places that we went happened to be the city of Corinth, or the, remo- the remains of the city of Corinth. And so that you understand what's going on in the cultural context of what's taking place here and the question that was asked that addressed this particular issue, in the city of Corinth, there was built upon the Acro-Corinth, or the highest point, and that's where you get the word Acropolis. It's the highest point in the city of Athens. They had the, Acro, uh, the Acro-Corinth, which was the highest place in the city of Corinth. And on top of the hill, there was a temple that was built to the Greek goddess Aphrodite, which we get our English word aphrodisiac, which has to do with sexual intimacy and relationship and enhancing sexual activity and things of that nature. Anyway, this, this temple was built to this Greek goddess, And as part of the religious system or the culture of that day, men would go to the top of this particular city and they would go into the temple and there were 1,000 prostitutes who serviced the sexual needs of the men who came into the temple to experience this relationship with other women. And so what was happening here was that, you know, sexual activity was rampant. And in fact, even to this day when we were there, as you, as you went through the ruins, and also even in the gift shops and things of that nature, they would have pottery and there would be plates and there would be uh, vases and, or vases, and you say tomato and I say tomato. But anyway, there are things that you put stuff in. And, uh, and, and, and all around the inscription of these things and goblets and things of that nature were very graphic sexual acts and... and um, and, and pictures depicting orgies and things of that nature that were all part of the culture of that particular day. And the point is, is that there was no parameters or guidelines or restraints on how sexual conduct was, was taking place in that particular culture. Their philosophy was, if it feels good, go ahead and do it. If you love each other, go ahead and do it. As long as you don't hurt anybody else, go ahead and do it. God made me this way, so go ahead and do it. Gee, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? But uh, there's not much difference between what we're experiencing and what was going on then. So, you know, people haven't changed all that much. And as a result, what God has to say certainly crosses all generational boundaries as far as truth. Truth is truth, and it's relevant for all periods and all times. So what was happening here, the church at Corinth then wrote a letter to the Apostle Paul asking for God's position, asking for God's position on sexual activity. See, what happened to them was, as they came to receive the good news of who Jesus Christ was, and they embraced him as being their, uh, their provision for the sin that separated them from God, as they said, oh, we didn't know that God sent us his son, and we didn't know that he was Jesus Christ, and we didn't know that he died for my sins, and we didn't know that he rose again from the dead demonstrating that he was who he claimed to be, and we didn't know that you had to invite him into your life and ask for forgiveness of your sin. But then once we did that, something amazing began to happen in our life. All of a sudden, the behavior that I was doing before when I was going to the temple and visiting the prostitutes and having sex with whoever I wanted to, you know, something inside of me started to scream out to me, that's not right. That's wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. And so all these people that gathered together that had made a similar decision for Christ, they formed this church in the city of Corinth, and they were all together, and they were saying to themselves, you know what, all these things we used to do, there's something bothering us now, and it never bothered us before, and and that's not right, and we shouldn't be doing that, should we? But what should we be doing? What is a proper way to conduct ourselves in the sexual area of our life? And so they wrote this letter to the Apostle Paul, and they said to him, basically the, the leaders of the church said, you know what? Sex is so out of control and it's so rampant and even though God created it for good, man has screwed it up so much, we don't want to be any part of all of that. We want to separate or sanctify or separate ourselves from all this behavior that's wrong before God. 
And so the leaders of the church said, you know what? It's better for us not to even have sex at all. And so they wrote this letter to the Apostle Paul and they said, wouldn't you agree with us that it's better not to even have sex? And so he wrote back to them and this was the response. He said, you know, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman. Yeah, that's great. That's a great way to live your life. If you can be celibate and you can restrain from having sexual activity outside of marriage and you can do that and that's what you want to do, there's nothing wrong with that. But thank God for verse 2. Because this is one big but I'm happy to see in the Bible. But because of immoralities or because of your desire to have sexual relationships with one another, then the only way that's proper and right before God is to let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Wow. You look at that, and what he's saying is, if you have a desire to have sex with another person, get married. If you want to know what God's position is towards sexual relationships with one another, it's very clearly identified in this passage. And if you want to be a great lover, that's why I'm talking about the first principle is marital fidelity. It's confining your sexual activity to your spouse. See, God's position is quite clear. Now, we may not quite, quite clearly like it, but it's pretty clear. And somebody say, well, why, you know, why marriage? Why can't we, if we love each other, just live together? Why can't we just you know, have sex if we don't hurt one another? And as long as we go get our AIDS test and HIV test, and we can go get you know, our VD test, and we can go get blood tests, and as long as we're all clean and, and, and healthy, well, why can't we just do that? Same because God won't protect you. But if you get married, he'll protect you. Say, but marriage doesn't work. Matthew 19, Jesus said marriage works fine. The problem isn't marriage. The problem is people will enter into marriage. God's idea works just fine. That's like the old argument. You know, guns kill. Drugs kill. Alcohol kills. Cars kill. I haven't seen a gun shoot anybody yet that wasn't picked up by some human being. I haven't seen a drug kill anybody yet that's just sitting on a table not being snorted or ingested or somehow or another popped into your veins. I haven't seen a car kill anybody yet sitting in the garage unless you're a kid that's waiting to get his driver's license and it's killing you to get out there and drive it. <laughs> but the reality of all that is, is there's nothing wrong with marriage. The problem is the people that enter into marriage don't understand that marriage was designed by God for a lifetime. And it was a commitment for the rest of your life that you work through the good and the bad times of life and you work through the differences so that you can enjoy some vitality and health and excitement that only two people that are drastically different put together under one roof that are committed to work things out will ever experience in their lifetime. Nothing wrong with marriage. What God was saying was, you know what? Here's my design for marriage. Number one, get this straight. With all the garbage that's going on in our society, God says this about marriage. It was designed for what? For a heterosexual relationship. You know, the state of Hawaii is trying to pass a bill to somehow or another validate same-sex marriages. Other states will fall into place as soon as somebody takes that first step because it's, quote, the politically correct thing to do. But I think it's important that we understand something. It's very dangerous territory and it's destructive to society. And the reason for it is simply this. God designed men and women differently. He made us male and female. And he says, if you want to have sex, then let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. So marriage was designed heterosexually. It was also designed as an exclusive relationship. One woman, one man. One man, one woman. That was it. No polygamy, no multiple marriages, no multiple sex partners. It was one-on-one. -on -one. And the third thing was this, that it was to be confined, sexual activity was to be confined to your marriage. In other words, to become a great lover, one must abstain from sexual activity. Listen to me, if you're single and you're not married, if you want to be a great lover one day for a future spouse, then do not have sexual activity with anyone and you wait for the day that God brings your spouse into your life and then you go crazy after that. You understand what I'm saying? Because it, it is designed to abstain from sexual activity before you get married. Once you are married, then you are to be totally committed to meeting the sexual needs and the emotional needs of your spouse to the exclusion of all other human beings. That's as simple as it gets. 
I saw a talk show not too long ago, you know, with all the Super Bowl hype and stuff, you, it's just like, gee, you know what, where do you come up with all this stuff to talk about? But they had interviewed Roger Staubach at one point in time, who was a quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, who are going to happen to lose today to the Pittsburgh Steelers. But anyway, the reality of all of that is, oh, don't lose, no, don't leave me right now, okay, just, just come back here, okay, all right who was being interviewed, and they were talking about Joe Willie Namath and Joe Namath and, you know, Broadway Joe and all the stuff that Joe had going on, and Joe was a playboy, and he was a carouser, and he liked to womanize, and he was doing all these things, and that was Joe's history at that particular time, which, by the way, is no longer Joe's feeling about life. Now he's happily married and has, has a child. But anyway, that was Joe in those younger days. And uh, Roger Staubach was on an interview, and this gal was asking him, trying to get the dirt and the scoop on everything that goes on in professional sports, and said, you know what, Joe Namath likes to run around and womanize and do all these things. So that, well, what do you think about that? You know, are, are you just as sexually active as Joe? And uh, Roger said, well, yeah, I am. I'm just as sexually, sexually active as Joe. Oh, man, and look in this lady's face. I got you. This is going to be the biggest scoop. I'm going to be the one that scores it. And she said, oh, yeah, tell me what's the details. And he goes, well, I'm just as sexually active as Joe. The only difference between Joe and I is that Joe runs around with a lot of different women, and all my activities can find to one woman, and that's my wife. Oh, Alrighty, what's next? See, you know, no one wants to hear that. You know, marital faithfulness is paramount if you're to become a great lover. You know, the trust that you have for one another makes your sexual life vital and enjoyable. Now, when that trust is broken, sex is difficult, and at times it's almost impossible. But I, but I want to talk about that in a future session because don't bail out on me now. Because if you've had sex before marriage, it, things aren't hopeless. If you've had extra sexual activity even during the course of your marriage, please understand something, that it's still not hopeless. God is a God of love and forgiveness, and he can pick you up right now, and he can move you in a new direction that will totally change and be dynamic in your lifetime. So don't feel like you're a loser. Don't feel like, because, a, you know what, a, a loser isn't a person. You know, a mistake takes place at a moment in time. You are not a mistake. You're not a loser because you made a mistake. A mistake happens. We need to recognize that it happened. We need to, to make it right, and then we need to move on from there. So you're not disqualified from future blessings from God because you screwed up in the past, because all of us would be. So we need to recognize and understand that, okay? But we're going to deal with that in another session. Anyway, the point that I'm trying to make is that there are many, there are many emotional and mental factors in having good or great sex. Listen to Genesis 2.24. It says, For this cause, speaking of marriage, a man is to cleave to his wife, and that the two would become one flesh. I like that because what he's saying is this phrase is quoted again in Ephesians 5.31 and it refers to face-to-face -to -face sex. It refers to an intimacy. And I don't think it's a coincidence in any way that as far as I'm aware, only men and women are the only beings that God has created that are designed with the capability of having intimate face-to-face -face sex with all the pieces of the puzzle fitting together. You know what I'm saying? There was, I, someone handed me this. If you doubt this, go to the zoo. <clears throat> The Santa Ana Zoo on February 10th will have its second annual sex tour. It's fun, it's interesting, and everyone blushes. Alrighty, anyway. But the point is this, uh, you'll get to see, I guess you'll get to see up close and personal how animals sexually relate to one another. And I'll never forget the time we were down in the desert, our kids were little. We are at the living desert and it was alive and active that particular day. <laughs> And, uh, and our son was probably about five years old at the time, pointed out in a very loud voice in front of a big crowd how that one turtle was riding on the other one. And, uh, you know, was trying to figure out, you know, how they were playing uh, that particular game. And, uh, you know, and this turtle was screaming and yelling and trying to bite the other turtle, and it was riding on it, and it was like, okay, there we go. Um, alrighty. And you just kind of look, and you realize, you know what? God's creation of men and women is totally different than everything else that he created. There's no way you can get around that. And that's good to understand that. So listen, sex, having sex doesn't make you a great lover, uh, neither does having sex establish a marriage. And what we need to recognize is, if you've got your Bibles, look at Proverbs 5 for a minute, and I want to give you some insight as to how, as men, we can become great lovers in our relationship. Proverbs chapter 5, some real good stuff right here. Proverbs 5, in this particular passage, is contrasting um, men who get led astray by other women in their relationship and how God is saying that, you know what, we need to recognize that this is the way that we're going to 
to have that vitality that we need for a lifetime. In Proverbs chapter 5, uh, look at verse 18. Four ways that men can become great lovers. Okay? Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Number one, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Men, if we want to become great lovers, we need to recognize, we need to rejoice in the wife of our youth. There's nothing that will destroy sexual intimacy and the inability to be a great lover if you are discontented with your wife. If you're discontented and you wish that you married someone else or you wish that you were with someone else, you will never become a great lover to your wife. It's as simple as it is. Rejoicing, the word actually means to shine and to glitter. It indicates to get great joy from. It means that my wife is to be the source of all of my joy in my life. She's to be the source of the joy in my life as far as sexual intimacy is concerned. I know what some of you are saying, but man, my wife is not the source of my joy. She is the source of my greatest aggravation. And you know what? Sometimes that's true. And we need to understand something. Rejoicing in the wife of your youth or rejoicing in your wife as a husband, let me remind you that it is our responsibility to choose joy in our relationship with our wife. We need to choose to have a joyful relationship. Now, it doesn't mean your wife can't drive you crazy. It doesn't mean she can't aggravate you. I mean, you know, we all go through that. We know what that's all about. Uh, but it does mean that I can choose joy in the midst of that aggravation. Give me an illustration. Rejoicing was a term that was used of a spontaneous celebration. It was used of the celebration after a victory in battle. It was spontaneous it was, it was something from the heart. It was deep from within. And, and, and it's like I said, it, it's going to be the scene in the Pittsburgh Steelers locker room after the game today. There's going to be spontaneous joy and celebration. We did it. We accomplished it. And that's what's going to happen. See, and then you'll get a good picture of that and you'll understand something. So what's the application? The application to me is whenever I get frustrated in my marriage, which is very, very, very rarely, dear, But when I do, on those, uh, on those few occasions that I do, you know what I do to overcome it? I think back on when we met. It's been 24 years since I met my wife, and I saw her sitting in a class at a high school in Pennsylvania. And I walked in, and I went, wow. That was cool. <laughs> so I didn't go, wow! I just kind of went, whoa. But inside, I'm thinking, does she notice me? And obviously, she probably did. I had a big old afro. Everybody noticed me. They had to get out of the way. <laughs> you know how it was. Afro, bell bottoms, big old white belt. I mean, how can you not notice that? <laughs> but anyway, but I'm thinking, does she notice me? Oh, man, you know, would she, would she go out with me? Would she pick me up and drive because I wasn't old enough? <laughs> but, you know, all those kinds of things. You're thinking all this, and as, as our relationship developed over a period of time, and finally, it's like, and you fight off all the other contestants. You know, it's a guy thinking, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, mm, out of the way. Mm, mm, ah. All right, you go back, and you say, hey, would you marry me? And she says, yes. And you go nuts. That's the greatest day of your life. When the woman of your dreams says that she wants to spend the rest of her life with you, man, that's an exciting day. And so what happens in my relationship, and I begin to realize that, you know what, there are times where she aggravates me to this day about different things, because she's different than me, and I'm way different than her. And so we kind of rub each other the wrong way on occasions, but you know what, before I choose to get aggravated and upset about all of it, I remember what it was like when she first said she'd marry me. I remember what it was like when I first saw her for the first time. When she wanted to go out with me through. I remember what that was like. And man, you know what happens then? It brings a smile to my face. That's exciting stuff. If you want to be a great lover, buddy, let me tell you something. You need to choose to rejoice in the wife who said that she'd spend the rest of her life with you because you don't deserve her. We know her. We know you. <laughs> How did you do it? But it's exciting, isn't it? You know what it is, too? 
The Apostle Paul uses the same type of term in Philippians when he says, you know what? Can I just tell you something if you want to join your life? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. When you're down and you're not feeling real good about yourself, and you're not feeling good about what's going on around you, and you're aggravated, and you're upset, and you're bitter about all kind of stuff, he says, can I just suggest that you remember what God has done in your life through Jesus Christ? Would you just take a moment to remember where he has brought you from? And remember that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day that Jesus comes back again or until the day he takes you to heaven. Can you just remember that God is still actively at work in your life? Can you just remember where he's brought you from, where you are today, and where you are going? And man, you know what? Every time I think about that and remember that, you know what I can't help doing? I can't help smiling. I can't help smiling to remember what God has done in my life. See, if you want to be a great lover, buddy, let me tell you something. You need to choose to remember and rejoice in the wife of your youth. You say, but she ain't young no more. She don't even look like the woman that I married. Then you know what you need to do? And I've done this, and it's amazing how this works. Pull out some old photo albums. Pull out some of you. Pull out those old 16-millimeter films. Pull out some videos. Pull out some slides. And you look at those pictures, and you can't help but smile. And no one can blame you. And no one can blame her for choosing you either if she does the same thing. And man, it'll change your life. It'll change your life. You need to also be excited, it says, with her breasts. Now what that means simply is this, that you're satisfied with her and her alone has nothing to do with the size of them. It has nothing to do with the shape of them. It doesn't have anything to do with how she stacks up against other women. It doesn't have anything to do with any of those things. But what it does is it has to do with you and her, being content and satisfied with her. If you want to become a great lover, there's two things, buddy, that you should never do. Number one, don't you ever compare the physical attributes of your wife to anybody else on the face of the earth. It is not a good... Amen, right, ladies? It is not a good idea... It is not a good idea. How, don't ever say, oh, why can't you be like her? Don't ever say that. It doesn't do much for you becoming a great lover or getting any kind of awards in that category. Don't compare yourself. And what I would suggest is, then stop looking at the Victoria's Secret magazine. You know what I mean? And, and stop looking at things that would have you compare yourself or her to somebody else. I'm preparing all this when I get the annual Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. All right, so I know what I'm talking about, and, and, and I know what God's trying to say here. Be content with what you have. Oh, also, number two, if you're into pornography, stop it. If you want to be a great lover, then you better stop it because it's going to mess your head up to the point where you can't even imagine because you won't be able to help comparing what's going on and the stuff that you read or the stuff that you watch. And this isn't a thing on pornography. All I'm telling you is if you want to be a great lover... Get out of it as quick as you can. Throw away the magazine. Throw away the books. Throw away any videos. Don't even do it. Don't even, don't even think about it. And typically what happens is it's a man who tries to get his wife involved in watching it and looking at it, thinking that it's going to turn her on. But we already saw the cross-section of the brain, and guess what? She doesn't get excited about stuff that she sees. She gets more excited about it, and I can't figure this out, but men and women are different. We go to a movie, and there's a little bit of flesh that comes somewhere in the point because every three minutes they have to show something like that, and it's for the guys. And you get all excited, and you get home, and your wife's turned off, man. She doesn't want anything to do with you. She doesn't want to touch you. She doesn't want to look at you. She's so disgusted with sex and what she just saw. And you're all excited, and you can't figure it out. Then you go to a movie that you think, I'm just doing her a favor and I'm sitting there and watching something like a movie like Sabrina or something like that, you know? And then it's like, and you go and you watch that and you get home and she can't stop coming after you. Well, or, you know, or something like that kind of movie. But it's like, why? Because she sees things differently than you do. And she gets turned off by the disgusting stuff and you get turned on by it and she gets turned on by what? Commitment and relationship and romance. That's the stuff that women like. We need to also be excited with her love. It means to be taken astray from the sexual advances of other women and being led astray by the advances of your own wife. I like that. Being led astray from another to yours. And the last thing is also refuse to find sexual satisfaction with any other woman, and we'll talk about all that. Number two, the second principle. First one's marital fidelity. The second one we will call the, the uh, principle of immediate response. 
The key word here, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the key word as we look at this is that God says, you know what, okay, first of all, get married and then be faithful in your marriage. Stay committed to one another and meeting each other's needs. It says, let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The word is duty. Now, I don't know too many people get excited about doing their duty. You know, it's kind of like, you know, kitchen duty, yard duty, uh, you know, cleanup duty, all this kind of stuff. And if you had a choice, say, ah, I can do that. But that's not what the word is. The word actually refers to benevolence or goodwill. I would define it this way. Say, do you have anything this week for goodwill? <laughs> but, um, but, but what we're talking about is it's an act of kindness or a charitable gift. If you want to become a great lover, don't respond merely out of duty. Oh, okay, if you want to. You know, it's like, I'll do it, but I don't really want to. Oh, okay, I, if you have to, I'll go ahead and do it, but I got a headache and I don't even want to do it. Or, okay, we'll go ahead and do it, but I'm not going to enjoy it. Well, let me give you a clue. Don't worry about even thinking you're going to enjoy it if you're saying, I'll do it, but I don't think I'm going to enjoy it. Because you won't. And the reason for it is simple. Because it's, it has to do with the primary sexual organ in human beings is the brain. It all starts right here. Listen to what Dr. Ed Wheat writes in his book, Love Life. He says, the husband greatly desires response from his wife. She can give him this beautiful gift and delight his heart. However, judging from my mail and counseling appointments... Many women do not understand how important both physically and psychologically a sexual relationship is to their husband. They don't seem to realize that their avoidance of sex or lack of response will affect their entire marriage in the most negative way. It says, to the indifferent wife, I give this caution. When there is no physical intimacy between you and your husband, whatever emotional and spiritual closeness you have had will tend to fade as well. This is how one husband expressed his frustration in his marriage. He says, my wife and I need help. I feel that all our troubles stem from one cause. My wife does not want to have sexual relationship with me, and I cannot accept this. The situation has existed for all 18 years of marriage. It's like I have to beg her every time. We currently have relations about once a month. This occurs normally after many days of my frustrating attempts to have her respond. Then it is not a loving affair, but a surrender or a duty attitude on her part. I love my wife. She's an outstanding wife and mother and friend, except that she doesn't physically love me. I'm afraid to face up to the fact that maybe my wife just doesn't love me and cannot respond to me. I've asked many times, and I've asked myself many times, why are you even still married to her? I don't have an answer. I don't know what to do. See, he says, we're not speaking now of a wildly passionate response on the part of the wife, but only a positive response. When a wife responds, she gives an answer by word and action to her husband's lovemaking. It can be gentle, and it can be gentle, it can be simple, it can be loving, it can be enthusiastic, but it doesn't have to be overly dramatic. But a wife should meet her husband with open arms and warm acceptance. See, men and women think different. Women don't understand that that response to your husband is what makes you a great lover to him. It's not a physical act of performing your duty and saying, now that I got that out of the way, I'll go back to what I want to do. But it's to be there and to be involved. And as important it is for a woman to want to have hugging and cuddling and caressing and tender words and all that goes along with it. It's equally as important for a man to feel like you want to be there and you want to be doing what you're doing more than anything else in the world at the time that you're doing that. We're looking for a response, and that's what he's trying to say. And God says the same thing. It's your duty to fulfill that response and to do it immediately. Let me tell you something. If you want to be a great lover and your wife has a sexual desire or a need that needs to be met, then you meet it immediately. You don't put it off. You don't put it on the back burner. You don't put business first or sports first or other things first. If she has a need, you meet it. And the same thing's true of you, lady. If your husband has a need or a desire or something that's going on in his life and he needs to be with you in an intimate way, then you meet that obligation. And you do it with a joy and a response that you're glad that you have the opportunity to love one person for the rest of your life. We need to recognize how important that is. We need to realize that it's okay for a husband and wife. And the, and the church at Corinth struggled with the two. And what God was saying to them was, I stamped this and validated. It's okay to have sex within marriage and enjoy it. I designed it that way. And just because the world has corrupted it, and just because pornography has corrupted it, and just because all of your society has corrupted it, doesn't mean that you can't enjoy one another in your marriage. Enjoy it! It's God-ordained, and that's how he designed it, and we need to recognize that. Stop struggling with it. It's okay. The third thing has to do with this third principle of sexual submission. Sexual submission. 
He goes on to say, you know what? The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. When you get married, you relinquish certain freedoms. You can no longer go as you please and do what you want and spend money as you want, when you want. You can't do that anymore. Why? Because you're accountable to another human being. You've put yourself in the position of saying, I will answer to you, I will be accountable to you. The two of us have joined together and become one flesh. We now answer to one another. The same is true in your sexual life. When you said you would, he thought you meant it. And that's what we need to understand. And the same thing with you. When you said, I do, she thought, okay. We need to recognize that. It's sexual submission, it's mutual. And we need to recognize that we have a responsibility. You know, some of us are, are struggling in a lot of areas of life, but we need to understand something, and that is in the area of sexual intimacy, there's two questions that I would suggest that you ask one another. Because sometimes, as men and women are different, we have different ideas about what we like or don't like or what we'd like to do or not do. And so some of those things, we feel awkward to even share that because, you know, I don't want to share things with my wife and think that, you know, I'm some pervert who got this information from something else. That's why pornography is so dangerous. I ain't going to do that because I saw that done in that movie and I don't want to see it. I'm not going to do that because I saw that magazine. I'm not going to do that. That's gross. That's disgusting. It's degrading. It's, it, it's, it's immoral. And so all of a sudden, we're not open to think about it or even talk about certain things because we're afraid how the other person is going to respond. Let me just suggest this. Two questions. Number one, is there anything you'd like me to do in our area of our sexual intimacy that we're currently not doing? It reveals a love, an unconditional love to your partner. You know what? I'm here to meet whatever need that you have. Is there something that I can do to please you that we're not doing, that you're afraid to talk about or you don't want to discuss? It indicates an openness and a willingness and a commitment. The second question is this. Is there something that we've been doing that's been disgusting to you and you've been enduring it and I've been doing it because I thought you've enjoyed it and you can't stand it? And we need to talk about that too. Because what that does is tells my wife that guess what? If there's something that I'm doing or something that I want to do and it's disgusting to you and you don't want to do that and get involved in that, then you know what? I love you enough that I'll put you first. That I'm not here just to please myself or to serve myself with humility of mind. Put the other person before you. Selfless, selfless love, not selfishness. And say, thank you for asking. You know what's amazing to me is that communication and those lines of openness begin to open up and you start to talk about things you never talked about before. There's an intimacy that you've never had. There's a vulnerability and a transparency and an open, openness that you've never enjoyed before. And I don't care if you've been married 40 years or two years or two months. We need to communicate these things. God says you no longer have the right over your own body, but you're to be sexually submissive or mutually submissive to one another. And then the last thing is this, and we'll close. The fourth principle of becoming a great lover is one of continual habit. It's one of continual habit. You know, could you imagine what was going on at the church of Corinth? I was thinking, you know, in the context of which this letter was written, you got people who are involved sexually in all kinds of different activities. They get married and they think, well, now all sexual activities are wrong. Or what happens is this. You have one person who makes a decision to accept Jesus Christ, believe that he died for your sins. And you become a Christian by the biblical definition. The Spirit of God comes and lives within you, and now you start to become convicted about things that you never thought about before. So you have one person that makes that decision, but you have the other person, in the case where you're married, the other person that says, well, I'm not ready for that, I'm not into that, good for you, not for me, I'm not going that direction yet, or whatever. And so all of a sudden, you got the person who's convicted about all this activity saying, you know what, I'm giving sex up. And you got the husband in this case who hasn't given his life to the Lord, doesn't understand what's going on, says, you ain't giving sex up. Where'd you come up with that? And if you got to give sex up to be part of this new religion or whatever it is that you're doing, I ain't for that. I'm not signing up for that program. And so all of a sudden, they, you know, one person decides arbitrarily, I'm not into it anymore. That's one case scenario. Well, here's another case scenario. You're married for a while and all of a sudden you, you go, you know what, ah, we did it when we were younger, we don't have to do it anymore. Or I'm busy at work and I got other things going on and you know I'm just not into that stuff anymore. Well, gee, too bad because maybe your spouse still is. It's a continual habit. You know, it's not something that you outgrow and you don't do anymore. Listen to what he says. Stop depriving one another except by agreement. You have to mutually agree. If you're not going to have sex, then both of you have to come to agreement. We're not going to have sex. What's interesting, he said... The only, the only reason that you do that is for a time that you may devote yourself to prayer. You know what? I've seen people decide they're not going to have sex for a million other reasons besides, I want to pray tonight. Oh, really? Well, pray in the afternoon. Or, you know, pray when I'm not home. 
and, and, and don't walk around praying after you just walk out of the shower with nothing on. You know, hey now, sometimes it's just not good to say you're going to start to pray about something. You know, and, and I always say this, there are some things you don't have to pray about anymore. You don't have to pray, should I meet my husband's sexual needs? Should I meet my wife's sexual needs? You don't need to pray about it, you need to do it. That's because he says to. Right? And he says, and you know what? And if you agree to it, great. But make sure you come together again. Why? Lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Satan's strategy is to destroy marriages, destroy families, to destroy sexual intimacy. He wants to pervert everything that God intended for good. He wants to pervert it so that we think it's no longer good. We need to get back into the Word of God and understand this is an owner's manual for life. God made sex. He invented it. It was his idea, and he has the right idea as far as how it's to be conducted. He says it's to be conducted in marriage. It's an exclusive relationship. It's to be conducted with a husband and a wife over a course of a lifetime. It's to be a continual habit. You can't decide at some point during your marriage that you're not into sex anymore. And let me tell you something, what happens. If you decide you're not into sex anymore and you've got a partner who is still into sex, what will happen is somebody else will come along in your life who's into sex and draw him or her away from you. You need to understand what your responsibility is. We need to do that. We need to recognize it. Number one, marital fidelity. No sex outside of marriage. And once you're married, it's a commitment to one person for a lifetime. And law of immediate, or principle of immediate response. You've got a, a, a husband or wife who has a need sexually in their life, then you thank God that you're there to meet that need. And you meet it joyously and with a response that's pleasing to one another. Number three, sexual submission, mutual submission. You're to, you submit to one another. And number four, it's a continual habit. Let me close with this quote because I think it sums everything up that we're talking about. William Masters Virginia Johnson acknowledged that, quote, of all the recent notions about sex that have been given publicity in recent years, none is more harmful than the idea that a poor, that a poor sexual relationship can be, quote, cured by learning a technique from a book. An emphasis on the importance of technique is characteristic of so much that passes for good advice today. Nothing is good is going to happen in bed between a husband and wife unless good things have been happening between them before they get into their bedroom. That's why if you're a great husband, and you're a great wife, and you're best friends, and you've resolved the financial difficulties that have been separating you in life, that's why I've waited to this point to help you to realize something, that you know what, once you're a great husband and a great wife and you're best friends, and, and you solve the financial differences and all the things that are, that are taking you away from each other, once you've resolved all those things, it's easy to become a great lover. It's natural. There's nothing hard or difficult about it. He says if nothing good is going on outside of a bedroom, nothing good's going to happen within. There's no way for good sexual technique to remedy a poor emotional relationship. For a man and a woman to be delighted with each other in bed, both must desire to be there and to be there with one another. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. We thank you for the truth, the relevancy, the, the, the life-changing principles. God, help us as we apply these things and as it brings a smile to our faces to praise you for it and to thank you for your idea and your creation. And we just praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, next week.